Congregation, do you long for the city of God? Do you yearn for the city that in the words of Augustine of Hippo still lives by faith in this transitory course of time? Do we wish for the city that lives forever in the hearts of God's people? As we can all admit, and as children of our own times, there are many things contending for the removal of eternity from before our eyes and from within our hearts. On the one hand, more things increasingly portray our time on earth as something ideal, or even to the point in which believers wonder if heaven can be any better or more significant. On the other hand, afflictions and hardships in this life might become so vivid and so troubling that entertainment and self-satisfaction become a necessary but yet temporary solution. Furthermore, our eyes might be so focused on our earthly enterprises, that our hopes and expectations do not stretch beyond our life span. Whatever the reason, it is clear that Satan is making us seek and hope for the city of God less and less each time. Through this morning's text, we are instructed to desire and to seek a country, the heavenly country or the blessed city of God. According to our passage this morning, Christian faith entails more than merely the selling of an opposing judicial verdict, which is justification, or the recreation and renewal of the image of God in a person, sanctification, as depicted in our reading, verses 13 through 16, Christian faith entails a progress, a movement, movement from the depths of the earth to the heights of eternity, from the dust of time to the glory of eternity from the rubble of a fallen world to the glittering streets of the new Jerusalem. And according to our passage, this transition contains three elements. This progress from earth to heaven has three main elements. There is a pilgrimage, there is perseverance, and there is a pursuit. Let us begin by taking a look at the pilgrimage of faith, which we can find in verses 13 and 14. Dear congregation, the theme of the book of Hebrews is Christ is more excellent when compared to the angels and when compared to Moses, to the Levitical high priest. The conclusion of the author of the book of Hebrews is the same. To all this, Christ is superior. 
both in his person and in his ministry, Christ is more excellent. As Hebrews 8, 6 says, But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry, by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on better promises. And what we find in chapter 11 is that faith is the more excellent means through which people can become the object of Christ's ministry. It is by faith that we can receive Jesus, the more excellent mediator. However, because approaching God by faith might have seen a novelty or an innovation to the Hebrew believers, then the author traces a history of faith in which from beginning to end, the author shows that the just has always lived by faith. By employing a poetic and rhythmic language, the author of Hebrews tries to mark in his audience's minds that from beginning, from the beginning of Israel's history, the just has lived by faith. Children and young people in our midst, are there any psalters or hymns that because of their repetitive content or tune are particularly easy for you to remember? In an effort to make clear to his readers that Christians must live by faith, the author of Hebrews attempted to reach this effect. That is why we read verse after verse, by faith, by faith, by faith. In the list of examples that the author provides to prove his point, our passage is found in the author's description of the faith of the patriarchs. In verses, or from verses 8 to 12, the patriarchs are called to live as pilgrims. From verses 17 to 22, their manifestations of faith are enlisted. And now from verses 13 through 16, these verses are considered an interlude. Again, children and young people, when you are listening to a psalter or a hymn, and there is a section in which only instruments play, this section usually marks the entrance of a new segment. A new segment in a song is coming. In the same way, verses 13 through 16 set the principle, or if you want, the musical tone by which the patriarchs would respond once their faith would be put to the test. They were pilgrims on earth. They lived by faith. But it is interesting that our passage begins with the words, These all died in faith, as we can find it in verse 13. Because of the context, we understand all this, again, to refer to the patriarchs, Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, and Jacob. But remember, it cannot, we cannot go earlier in our context, because Enoch, for example, he did not see death. 
Enoch did not die. He was translated by God. The patriarchs died on their pilgrimage toward the land of promise. As verse 14 recalls, For they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country. Because of different references, we see that in the New Testament, new covenant believers become heirs of the new heavens and the new earth in the consummation. The word partially is suitable here because Christ is, and he is ultimately speaking, the rest, the true rest of believers. But concerning the land of promise, it's typical from the world in general. Matthew 5, 5 says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Romans 4.13 says that a promise was made to Abraham that he should be the heir of the world. Through Christ's death and resurrection, we, as children of Abraham, by faith, become heirs of the world, but also of the glorious new world, which makes us heavenly pilgrims. We are moving from the earth to the new world, to the new city, to the heavenly city, the city of God. And there are five characteristics or actions that the patriarchs performed which can provide concrete assistance to us as we try to pilgrim, pilgrimage or do our pilgrimage here on the earth. In verse 13, there is a death in faith. Well, died is the main verb in this verse but the subsequent or subsequent description is so comprehensive that it embraces not only someone's death but summarizes one's way of life from the greek the initial sentence says according to faith all these died which proves that they lived believing they died believing they all died believers. Secondly, there is a reception of the promises in faith. We, we read here, without receiving the promises. Well, the patriarchs did not possess the land by themselves. They did not see a multitude of descendants with their own eyes. They did not see all the nations being blessed by, by Christ. But they embraced those promises by faith and lived in light of those. They saw glimpses of it, but not the total fulfillment of these promises. Believers today, we do have access to Christ and to the promises of the gospel by the grace of God. And at the same time, even though we have an efficacious access to those promises. We have been saved and we have been secured by the gospel of Christ. But at the same time, we are longing for a fuller access to the redemption. We are looking ahead to the day in which we have no more relation to sin, in which we have no suffering. We look ahead to the day 
in which we can inhabit the city of God and we can see Christ face to face. So yes, we have access to His promises here, but at the same time, we are waiting for a day in which we will have a fullest access to those promises of the gospel. Thirdly, there is an observation and seeing of the promises in faith. Let us intentionally behold the scriptural promises and description of the new Jerusalem. Let me ask you, when was the last time that you went to the book of Revelation chapters 21 and 22? When was the last time that you rejoiced in reading, in seeing the new Jerusalem as we can find it in the scriptures? Fourthly, there is a welcoming of the promises. The Greek term points to a greeting. In that time in which this book was written, if someone left his town for a while, and upon his return, then that person could see his own city from afar, and the way in which this person greeted, or used to greet the city, was by waving his hand. We can see this now with children, perhaps, when we leave our homes and we go for a trip, when children are coming back and they are eager to return to their homes, they greet our own homes. They raise their hands and they see home close. So when a sojourner left their city in this time and they came back and they saw their city away, they rose their hand and they greeted their city. And fifthly, there is a confession that they made, as we find in verse 13. As the Belgic confession states, at the beginning, we confess with our mouths what we believe with our hearts. So believers are to describe themselves as strangers, as pilgrims on the earth, because they themselves have been changed eternity and the longing for the city of God is now in their hearts brothers and sisters this is what we are in our hearts not only for a while but permanently it is a matter of our identity right now so brothers and sisters who we are then who we are who are you our passage informs us about our identity in Christ again. It is related to our being. It is a matter of who we are. We are strangers. We are pilgrims on this earth. We have been rescued from our past manner of life. And we are on our way to home. It does not mean, however, that the road is easy. Or the road is plain. But there is a clear conclusion here. We need to see ourselves more and more as citizens of the heaven. Whatever may hinder our pilgrimage is something that needs to be dealt with. Whatever may be a hindrance for us, both internally or externally, we need to deal with that. First Peter chapter 2, verse 11. Beloved, 
I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshy lusts which wage war against the soul. Even though the end of our pilgrimage is glorious, there are difficulties, however, and those sometimes can seem impossible for us to overcome or surpass. Thus, we move to our second point in this sermon, the perseverance of faith, as we can find there in verse 15. Another reason why faith is so stressed in our passage is that the Hebrews, Hebrew believers, were greatly afflicted by their own. Hebrew believers were being persecuted by ethnic Hebrews. The Hebrew church was being afflicted on account of their faith. It was even to the point that some were returning to the physical and tangible ceremonies of the Old Covenant. But then in verse 39 from chapter 10, the author urges the Hebrews by saying, But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. This explains why some of the situations through which the author of Hebrews chose to expound faith were actually tests of faith. For instance, verse 17 says, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was offering his only begotten son. Faith must persevere through trials, and that is the message that the author was trying to convey to his audience. The key to perseverance is highlighted in verse 15, more specifically in the words, And truly, if they had been mindful of that country from whence they came out. This is an evident contrast between the patriarchs and the people of Israel after the Lord delivered them from Egypt. Do you perhaps remember that whenever they were tried by the Lord in the wilderness, Israel, the words of Israel, revered their desire to return to Egypt? When Pharaoh went after them in his chariots, their word to Moses in Exodus chapter 14 verses 11 and 12 were, There were no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you dealt with us in this way, bringing us out of Egypt? Verse 12, Is this not the word that we spoke to you in Egypt, saying, Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians and done to die in the wilderness. Just two months after being redeemed, they murmured again and said to Moses, Would that we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the posts, by the pots of meat, when we ate bread to the full. So can we see the contrast here? We see that the patriarchs, as portrayed in verse 15, and indeed, 
if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had the opportunity to return. Can we see the contrast between the patriarchs who were not thinking about the place they left, but can we see Israel as going through the wilderness every time that they faced a difficulty, they just thought about Egypt. Their desire was to return to Egypt. They complained and murmured against the Lord because they desired to return to the place of sin and slavery, to the place of idolatry. Such was not the mindset of the patriarchs, and such must not be our mindset. Ours should be one that aims to heaven, not one that leads us to return. As Colossians 3.1 says, Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. And the seed of a heavenly mindset begins by us addressing our minds and filling them with the truths of the Word of God. Of course, knowledge is, is not everything. Our souls consist of intellect, affection, and will. But certainly, we cannot love nor do something that we don't know particularly about the person of Christ. We cannot love someone that we don't know. Thus, if we hope to believe and seek the things above, if we hope to love heaven, and if we hope to live in a desire for heaven, we need then to begin by informing our minds with scriptural promises and descriptions of heaven. Dear brothers and sisters, if you ask, well, how do I get that mindset? How do I get a heavenly mindset? How do I set eternity in my mind? Well, remember one of the gospel calls that we as believers have is found in Romans 12, verse 2. We are called to renew our minds, to renew our understanding. And that renewal happens when we set our minds in opposition to the conformity of this world, of this age. This answer might sound common to you. Well, the answer will be always, go back to the basics. Go back to reading your word and to praying in the presence of the Lord. That is the first and the most fundamental step to acquire a heavenly mindset. The reason is that there is no substitute for the power and the influence that the Word of God has on a believer. Do you want to know how powerful the Word of God is in a believer? Well, stop reading and you will know how earthly you can become, how soon you can return to the place where the Lord has brought you out of. Andrew Bonner wrote about Murray Machane that his morning hours were set apart for the nourishment of his soul with the purpose of giving the eye a habit of looking upward all day. 
This is certainly true. Scriptures give us an eye to eternity. And they will set the tone for us to look everything with an eye upward. Again, children, have you had the chance to use a telescope? A telescope, and through a telescope, you can see from close objects that are distant and are immense. Scriptures like a telescope bring the immensity and reality of the city of God right before our eyes. Dear brothers and sisters, what do you see? Or rather, whom do you see? If God's providential hand strikes with an illness, what do you see? Do you see death closer? Or you see heaven closer? Do you see God farthering the image of His Son in you? Do you see God calling your family's attention to the reality of eternity? Do you see God using you to reveal Himself to others? When scarcity knocks on your door, do you see the pantry half empty? Or do you see God teaching you dependence on Him? Do you see God calling you to His presence? Do you see Jehovah Jireh? Young people, when you experience uncertainty about your future, whom do you see? Do you see the one who holds your tomorrow? Do you see the one who is sovereign above all and who always fulfills his will? Do you see different roads with no clear direction? Or do you see the God who is in control? Do you see this as an opportunity for you to experience his paternal care over you? When God blesses you with abundance, what do you see? Do you see as Nebuchadnezzar that which your hands have built? Or do you see a gracious and faithful God entrusting you with gifts? Do you see the gift or the giver? Congregation, when we see the deconstruction of our society, a terrible challenge that we are facing, humanly speaking, what do we see? Whom do we see? Do we see he that sits in the heavens and has set his king upon his holy hill? Do we see the need to undertake our prophetic role and militate for the cause of Christ? But most importantly, do we see that victory has been already secured in Christ? What do we see? When was the last time that you saw the new Jerusalem? When was the last time that you read and the foundation stones of the city wall were adorned with every kind of precious stone. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each one of the gates was a single pearl. 
and the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. I saw no temple in it, for the Lord, the God Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. When was the last time that you saw and rejoiced and yearned for the day in which you will be able to inhabit the city of God? That glorious city, your city. Isn't this the place that you are heading to? Isn't this the city that you desire? Isn't this your city? Faith, as we saw, is the substance of things hoped for in verse 1. This means that when we read about heaven or that glorious city of God, it is almost as if faith provides such a city with a physical dimension. And we are not talking here about speculation or imagination. The idea is clear. Faith takes what is promised and described in the Word of God and brings it right before our eyes by giving it real substance. So to say, in real space, in time. As one commentator said, accordingly, faith causes the thing hoped for to exist in the mind of the believer, though not yet actually existing. He who ascends firmly to the promises of God is one who sees the blessing, the blessings promised as already present. But faith not only sees, faith desires, faith pursues. And as we move to our third and final point, there is a pursuit in faith, a pursuit of faith, which we can find in verse 16. It is told about a young Scottish minister from the 17th century, whose name was Andrew Gray, that he desired heaven so strongly and so consistently that when he died at the age of 22, the people of his congregation saw his death as God granting him his desire. The reason why the patriarchs confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth and the reason why they were not mindful of the country they came out of was their desire for a better country, for a heavenly country. As Hebrews 13, 14 says, For here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. From the Greek term, desire pictures not only a feeling or something that you sense. Desire from the Greek also involves employing some means to reach that desire. Literally, one person stretching his hands to grab something 
that he desires. So from our text, however, we also understand that the heavenly country is pursued in a covenantal or congregational context. <clears throat> the word country from the Greek could be better translated as a father land. And this was a land that a person inherited from his father. But in this same land, the receivers, children, were expected to live as well. So it is a generational inheritance. Or if we could say, by way of application, it is a covenantal inheritance, which means that when we progress from earth to heaven, when we seek for this heavenly city, also it is a pursuit that we need to do with our children. They also must receive this land. So parents, I encourage you to preach the gospel faithfully and consistently to your children. Fathers, intercede as priests of the home. Intercede for your children incessantly. Intercede day and night for your children so that they may inherit the heavenly country as well. And mothers, teach and train and raise your children with eternity in mind. Mothers, teach your children to know, to love, and to desire this heavenly city, the city of God. God is the God of the covenant, and even though in that we rest, we also see great responsibility. Genesis 18:19, God said about Abraham, For I have chosen him, so that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken to him. We know that the patriarch's faith was not unshakable. There were times of struggle and difficulty. They had their own shortcomings, but faithful was he who sustained them. They were secured from the moment in which God called himself their God. As we see in the second part of verse 16, but as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. And remember that the Lord constantly reveals himself in the scriptures as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. They had access to the promises of God because God sealed his name in his covenant and because of his faithfulness. They did not have merit in themselves, but faithful is he who promised, as we can find in verse 7 also and 17. So in this God we rest, in the covenant God we trust, in the same covenant God we serve and labor 
as we wait in His faithfulness and His grace. And now within the old covenant people, many did not make it to the land of rest. Unbelieving friends in our midst. What is hindering you from desiring the land of God? God has put eternity in the hearts of men. You have eternity in your heart. And like the servant said to the master of the banquet in Luke 14, 22, Still there is room. Still there is room. There is room in the city of God for those who have been impressed with a sense of their sin and their corruption and their guilt of sin. There is still room for those who gasp after the Lord Jesus Christ. There is still room for those who know that the only way to be delivered of their sin is through the person of Jesus Christ. There is still room. There is still room for those who are standing afar off. There is room for those who strike their chest and say, Be merciful to me, O God. There is still room for those who say, Depart from me, for I am a sinner. There is still room in the city of God for those who repent and put their trust in Jesus Christ. As Thomas Boston said, there is still room for you in the heart of the Master. Unrepentant sinner, there is still room for you in the heart of Christ. There is room in the communion of the Holy Spirit. Come, O sinner, come to the Lord Jesus Christ. If you ascend to the truths of the gospel, then trust in Christ with your heart. He will not let your soul die forever. Now, when looking at the description of faith, we might be tempted to glorify faith in itself. But truly, faith is what it is because of its object, because of God as He has revealed Himself in His Word. In verse 11, we read about Sarah, that she considered Him faithful who had promised. In verse 19, Abraham, when he was tried, he offered up Isaac, and he considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead. So congregation, if the Lord is pleased with bringing us into situations where humanly speaking, we see no strength in us, no chances in us, don't forget to take a second look and see things through the lens of the Word of God. Even in the most difficult circumstance or in the most helpless state, the Word of God is living and powerful. 
And as Hebrews 12, verse 2 says to us, Fix your eyes on Jesus Christ. He will sustain you through whatever trial you are going through. The Lord continues to be faithful to His word. Remember, this is the means He chose to glorify Himself. He wants to bring us to situations where the only thing we have is faith in His Word. And He does so because this brings Him most glory. Look to Christ and be sustained as Moses, the one who was sustained by seeing the Invisible One. And let us not forget, congregation, he is leading us to a place. He is leading us to the city whose architect He is. God is bringing us to the city He Himself has prepared for us. God is bringing us home. Let us say with Samuel Rutherford, the sands of time are sinking the dawn of heaven breaks. The summer morn I've sighed for. The first sweet morn awakes. Dark, dark hath been the midnight. But day spring is at hand. Glory, glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. Amen. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you, Lord, for the great salvation that you have given to us by your grace and by the ministry of your Holy Spirit and by the faith you have given us in your Son. Dear God of heaven, as a congregation, as we move from earth to heaven, we pray, Lord, that you may remember our children, our grandchildren, and that you may remember us in the middle of these difficult times. Help us, Lord, to see the, the world and things the way you see them, and help us always to live with a mindset of pilgrimage. We are in a place that is not ours. We are being led by you to home. Help us to long for, to yearn, and to live in constant expectation to meeting you in that blessed city, the city of God. We pray, Lord, in the name of Christ, and we ask that these truths of your word may be written deeply in our hearts so that we may live them out and be transformed by them. We pray this in the name of your Son, the name of all names, in whose name we rest and we find our refuge and our help. Amen. Congregation, in response to the preaching of God's word, we will sing Psalter 114 from the Psalter hymnal.
praise waits for thee in Zion. God sends us with his blessing to Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, the God whom we adore, be glory as it was, is now, and shall be forevermore. Amen. <laughs>